Welcome to CNC Today, your machinist source for news and latest innovative products coming to you from cnctoday.com. I'm your host, I'm Jay Pearson. We've got uh, several things we'd like to discuss, uh, such as uh, industry myths. Now, I want to cover some of them, but I, I think I got a little too ambitious in mentioning a few. One was, is a faster machine going to make you more money? That one I definitely want to talk about. And the other one is a box weight more rigid than linear guides. Of course, this would be the sliding mechanisms on most vertical, horizontal grinders, all those types of machines that use a sliding table or column. Uh, that's what they slide in. You already know that. You're the machinist. We have an educated listening audience. And if not, look it up. It's an interesting debate in which uh, I would say... Man, it's it's a it's a big debate. Uh, that's why I, I kind of don't want to talk about it, but we will. We'll touch on it. Um, I'll tell you right now. Uh, living in Southern California, where you have two huge machine manufacturers, being Haas and Fidal, they use two different schools of thought when it comes to their bearing surfaces. Haas, of course, is the linear guide and uh, Fidel is the sliding boxway. Now, of course, the sliding boxway is much older. Linear guides are the new technology, although that technology has been around quite a while. You know, we're not going to get into this because there is just so much literature out there, and it's basically the marketing backbone for two of these companies. And to say one is better than the other would be a disservice and would actually be a little uh, ignorant on my part to make that distinction. They say that the boxways transport more of the vibration throughout the casting, through the column, through the base. That may be true. You have a lot more surface contact. However, here's the question. How critical is machine rigidity when you're putting it up against machine speed? Obviously, linear guides have the speed advantage. Boxways have the rigidity. Now, if you're going to do cast iron, you can't be whipping around a cast iron part. So, of course, you'd probably want the rigidity because of the surface finish. But if you're looking for pure speed running a lot of aluminum, linear guides is the way to go. Now, uh, some other things you might want to think about. The lifespan of a linear guide is far greater than a boxway. A boxway, once it wears, it starts to lose accuracy. Now, modern machine builders have done a great job at maintaining accuracy through good lubrication of their boxways. But when it comes to accuracy over a long time, I think you're going to get better life out of a linear guide. Now, I recently saw a picture, I should say an illustration, that illustrates this well. It was, yeah, it was out of a Haas catalog, and it talked about the differences between linear guides and boxways, and it really illustrates it well. And I think any critical thinking mind would agree that this is an accurate portrayal of the differences between them. Haas has it up online, and you can look at their brochure. A nice little, nice little illustration. It shows a, a cutaway section of a linear guide and a boxway. But uh, yeah, I, I think overall I was a little too ambitious in wanting to tackle that one. There's so we're gonna. <laughs> I'll tell you, if anything is gonna get us more mail, it's that. Hey, and let's let's uh, switch gears here. I I want to go over some practical machining topics here. Uh, I, I mentioned last time I wanted to get into bottlenecks in manufacturing, and, and this show's geared for the machinist, the owner slash machinist. 
the smaller outfits, the mom and pop type machine shops. They're the backbone of American manufacturing, I'll tell you that much. So for those of you who are have small shops, and when I say small shops, under 10 machines, under 10 employees, we'll say. Uh, some bottlenecks. For years, decades, if not for a century, people have been holding parts in a machine and doing very little to expedite the process of getting parts in and out of the machine. Now, I know I touched on this last time. It is the foundation for which I took my company's direction to produce work holding products that reduce this dollar stealing profit killing bottleneck known as spindle downtime now spindle downtime not in the sense of a spindle that's gone bad and needs service spindle downtime is anytime the spindle is not cutting now this happens most in a vertical machine center when parts are being changed out but the machine builders around the country and internationally have programmed the American shop owner to believe that the problem in inefficiencies is in the machine. So what do they do? They create faster machines. They create machines that change tools faster. They have faster rapids. They have faster spindle speeds. Let me tell you, the rapid on a machine does not nearly take up as much time as a slow operator. If your machine changes tools in five seconds and you're thinking of buying a machine because it changes tools in two seconds, I have news for you. That's not that much, especially when you're looking at the difference between getting rid of a machine that's maybe paid off and taking on a new thousand to $3,000 machine payment every month. There's some things that you can do. Of course, it's so glamorous and it's a great feeling to get a brand new machine in your shop. But dollar for dollar, there's some things that you can do so that the next time you really do want to buy a faster machine, you can buy it cash. So how do we solve this? A couple solutions. First of all, get faster operators. Now with the American workforce being watered down by unskilled laborers, plus a slowdown in the number of students graduating from technical colleges, a good machinist is gonna cost you more than an average button pusher. So we'll leave that one on the back burner. Another thing, you could go to those faster machines if you can afford it. Like we've already discussed, it's not gonna add up. The biggest thing is reducing spindle downtime. The biggest chunk of spindle downtime is lack of shifts. If you're running a one day shift, and then maybe you're running a night shift, you could run a third night shift slash morning shift that would improve spindle uptime. But then again, you're bringing on more factors, new payroll, probably a higher payroll because typically night shift takes more money and doesn't have the supervision of an owner there, typically. Unless you're a night person like me, the owner might be there. Now that gets us closer to maintaining more spindle uptime per 24 hour period. However, there's a third way that you can maintain spindle uptime without adding any of these other factors. It's to enable the operator to get more parts in and out of a machine faster. Now I'm passionate about this. I'm not just plugging our products, I'm not plugging other people's products. 
I'm trying to make the American shop owner realize that there's got to be a paradigm shift in this country when it comes to manufacturing on machining centers. It's old. It's an archaic method to run a machine holding minimum parts on the table. Look, the most efficient thing you can do is to load as many parts on that table as possible. When we look at the standard vice that's been around for who knows how many years or maybe even centuries, there's a lot more vice on the table than there is vice holding space. But let's get a little smarter than this. You want to load the most amount of parts on that table at once. What this does is, first of all, it increases the operator walkaway time. A guy hits start on that machine and it's got, we'll say, 50 parts on the table. That guy can walk away 25 times longer than if it had two parts. Now what does that do? It frees up the operator to go run other machines or to deburr or to do another setup or go to lunch or go home while that machine is making money for you. Now people need to be utilized in a more efficient way. In my opinion, the best way to do this is through palletized workholding. It's just not yet seen in the industry that palletized workholding is necessary because, you know, there are some dinosaurs that have taught the next generation to do it this way and that's the only way to do it. There's some old shop owners that they only do it that way and that's okay. They've been doing it successfully for 30, 40 years, but then they're training the next generation to do it the same way. At one point, the next generation needs to step out of what they've been taught and look at the big picture and say, there's got to be a better way to do this. Plus, it's not that fulfilling to be sitting in front of a machine, opening vices, pressing buttons all day. This paradigm shift has to take us in the direction of custom work holding, of custom fixturing, and eventually this word custom will go away and fixturing will be the standard. It won't be custom fixturing, it'll just be fixturing. You have to run these parts in a fixture. There is a curve on this if you were to look at it. Lower parts are typically not going to be more efficient by palletizing or by custom fixturing. Now we've shown through time studies that this break-even point for going to palletized workholding happens around 40 to 50 parts depending on the size of the part and how many you can get on a table. Once you break that 40 or 50 part order, you can get really efficient. Now that's, that's a remarkably low number. You don't see the advantage of plastic injection until you're in the thousands, if not tens of thousands, when you're going head to head against other techniques. But this is a really low number to break even for metal manufacturers. And you can be as efficient as if you're using it in a standard vise. That's remarkable. These are statistics people just don't see. People that do see it may not understand, but you've got to take the time. One of my business mentors told me, don't just work in the business, work on the business. That's key for a business owner. If you're not working on the business, you're going to stay in the same place. Business owners, I'm telling you, you have to look for better ways to manufacture stuff, even if you're doing things and it works. Just because it works doesn't always mean it's right. So let's touch on this. Say you do run those 50 pieces and it's a complex part. What do you do? A custom fixture may take far longer to create than if you were to run the job 
in the conventional fashion. One thing that you can do with a pallet system is you can standardize the first op. If you can standardize holding that first op, you can absolutely fly through a job. The first op, you got to realize, equals either 100%, 50 percent, 33%, 25% or 20% of the total operation time. Why 100, 50? Because if you cut a part that only takes one op, it's 100%. If you cut a part that has two ops and you've palletized the first op, you've just been more efficient on 50%. You see what I'm saying? So it's imperative, especially if the second or third op or following ops are a little bit more complicated. If you can get a first op in the machine and running and it's palletized and it's being moved in and out of the machine efficiently, you can have the programmer creating fixtures for the second, third, fourth, fifth ops. You've already bought yourself more time. And guess what? The profit really kicks in if the job repeats. Also, here's another thing. I had a conversation one time with the vice president at Chick Workholding, and he gave me one of the best presentations I'll ever hear. And he broke it down into all these different categories that take up the total job time. That went all the way from cutting to changing parts to changing tools. I mean, it was really detailed. And one of the things he pointed out was tool change time. Now, uh, earlier I mentioned that a, a fast machine might change tools instead of five seconds, might change it in one or two seconds. That's great. You know where that comes into play? When you palletize. Say there's a part that has 10 tool changes. Well, if you're cutting two parts in a vise, it's changing tools a total of 10 times. Now, say you have 50 parts across the table, you're only making 10 tool changes. Now, you've just eliminated 250 extra tool changes. What this does is it lowers the wear and tear on your tool changer, and all those little tool changes add up. In tool changes alone, depending on the quantity, you might be spending a couple hours just changing tools. I've seen it, I've eliminated it for customers, and you're getting instant results right there. A longer wearing machine, faster productivity, through fewer tool changes. I've got plenty of other things I'd love to talk to you about. I want to keep it uh, palatable to you guys. I don't want to give you a lecture. That's the last thing you need on a Monday morning. So I'll leave you with that. Drop me an email. Let's talk about some things. Maybe we'll even have an interview on the air. Who knows? We can do pretty much anything we want here. I'd love to hear your comments and feedback. My email at my company is jay at pearsonindustries.com. J at pearsonindustries.com. Well, for next time, when I talk to you next week, a couple more things I want to discuss. Home machinists. There's a lot of guys out there that would love to have a little machine shop in their garage. Another thing, machining in a rural environment. What are the advantages and disadvantages? How does a rural manufacturer survive? We've got some ideas and discussions about that. Well, hey, I really hope you enjoyed the show. We're working hard to make it better. Your viewer feedback would be appreciated. If you'd like to write directly to cnctoday.com, you can write to editor at cnctoday.com. That'll go directly to the desk of our editor-in-chief, James Austin. Well, thanks again for listening. We're going to have an exciting show on next time. We're going to get into those topics we discussed earlier. And who knows, we might field some of your questions and comments. 
I hope all is well. I'm your host, Jay Pearson, at cnctoday.com. We'll talk to you next time.